Hello, product innovators. Today we learn from a serial product entrepreneur and best-selling innovation author on how hardware startups can compete with big product companies. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, a show to learn from top leaders in product development, prototyping, manufacturing, product selling, and everything in between. Hosted by Kevin Macko, the leading expert on product development for physical product startups. Sponsored by PTC's two best-in-class 3D CAD product development software solutions, Onshape and Creo. And produced by Macko Design and Invent, the original firm providing world-class consumer product development services tailored specifically to startups, small manufacturers, and inventors. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Mike Stemple to the show. Mike is the author of Innovating Innovation, a number one bestseller. He also founded multiple consumer product startups, including Skinnet Wraps, and since then, Original Wraps, which sold to 3M. In addition to his own hardware ventures, he's also consulted a number of Fortune 500 product companies on how to be more entrepreneurial. Today, Mike is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can beat big corporations when developing a new product by being faster, more nimble, listening to customer feedback, and much more. Now, on to the episode. Hey, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, excited today to talk about how hardware startups can compete, especially in today's market with big corporations and everything that goes into that. You've obviously done it. Major success, both on the startup side, but you've also worked with many of these top leaders, top executives from some of the biggest hardware companies in the world on innovation. So you've seen it from both lenses. First and foremost, congratulations as well on the big book that you released, Innovating Innovation. Thank you. It was a fun one to write. Well, how did you get to the point that you are at today? Give us a bit of a run back through time. Yeah, let me start at the beginning. I'm, I'm ex-military. I ran out of high school. I was a combat medic in the military. I did really well. They kicked me out, asked me to go get my medical degree as a civilian and come back in. I got through my senior year of college when I was in a car accident and caved in my skull in the car accident. I lost both my military and my medical career, blink of an eye. But it was actually an amazing thing that happened to me. I hit the art center of my brain. And within six months, I became a well-known and famous artist in, in Colorado, where I grew up. You can see some of my artwork behind me. And I became a famous sports artist. I painted all these large murals of pro athletes and started my journey of working with large brands to create intellectual property and started out as an artist. Around that time, the internet was kicking into high gear and uh, I fell in love with coding. I taught myself to code and wrote some software and got my first company as an entrepreneur funded in, in 2000. The first three failed spectacularly, but I learned a lot in those failures. And then my fourth company was one called Skin It, stickers for cell phones and iPods. It was very early in the space. Uh, there was no such thing as a photo uploader or a product configurator or a designer in 2004. So we launched one of the first of those. And that company was profitable from day one. I tapped into this amazing trend of personalization and changing the, the look of consumer electronics to fit the uniqueness of the individual. Having worked with a lot of pro teams in the past as an artist, I figured out that if I got a licenses and offered the licensed content printed on a custom cut skin for consumer electronics, that would just take off like crazy. And it did. So Skin It is still in business to this day. I'm very proud of that. What, 15, 16 years later, I exited it early on and left and created another company in the same space of personalization, but I did it for cars. And so it's a company called Original Apps. We built technology to allow people to personalize their cars during the manufacturing process and roll it into the financing. We grew so fast and got so many big names, Ford, Chevy, Volkswagen, all the big names you can think of. The 3M came in and bought that company. And so wow. that was my first foray into marrying the power of the internet with the power of a physically custom designed product. 
So having two successes, I was like hungry for the third, had some more failures, launched a company called Masaro, which was a hardware company, a pure play hardware company, Bluetooth low energy, one of the first companies to launch in that space. It was venture backed from the start from early on, and it too failed spectacularly. And then around that time, people started asking me questions about large businesses that I had worked with previously. Started asking me, you know a lot about the startup space. Entrepreneurs are really starting to eat into our bottom line. We would love to have you come into our business and train our executives and how to think and act more entrepreneurial. And so for the last decade or so, I've been a corporate entrepreneur in residence where I embed in the large multinationals and help their senior leadership team better understand what's happening in the startup community and how they can better compete against the startups that are eating on their margins. It's very interesting that you mentioned that these big executives at these Fortune 500 hardware companies are looking to you to figure out why startups are eating away at their business. Because I can tell you from the product development world, in the startup space at Maco Design, most of the hardware startups are thinking, well, how can I ever compete with these massive companies out there and their huge R&D and innovation departments? How will I ever be the next big player? But that has changed dramatically, especially over the last few years. And you're now seeing this as an aggressive agenda at the corporate level. But the reason is, is because startups have such a competitive advantage. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. How can our hardware startups that are listening here on the show get that competitive advantage, compete with the big boys, and then eventually likely get bought out by those very same players for a very good ticket at the end of the day, if it's done right. First and foremost, talk about what's happening in the industry right now at the corporate level about cutting innovation and focusing more on acquisition or focusing even more on just their existing stuff that works and why that's such an opportunity. It's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur launching a physical products company, period. There's so much democratization of the tools and the techniques, and it's just easier than it was even five years ago or 10 years ago. And companies like yourself are making it even less risk adverse. The success ratio is increasing by companies like Mako. And I think when you compare that to what's happening in corporate, it's the opposite. It's becoming more risky. It's becoming more difficult. It's becoming more problematic. And I've traced it back to psychology. And one of the stories I love to tell is one of the multinationals I worked with, two people in marketing came up with an idea for a new product, pitched it, got shut down. It was an adjacent space that the company didn't want to pursue. Those two individuals quit, launched the idea as entrepreneurs and were wildly successful and ended up being acquired by Megacorp's competitor. And I was there as an entrepreneur in residence. So I saw the whole thing happen from the inside. And I always thought that was fascinating because you would think that the corporation would have seen the trend, would have believed in the trend, and would have had the time, talent, and treasure, big three Ts that any idea needs to be successful. They would have had the time to pursue it. They have unlimited budgets to be able to throw at it. And they have the most amazingly intellectual individuals working for them, so they think, that they should be able to capitalize that, but they can't. And the reason why is the psychology within a large business is not the same as the psychology in a startup. That you might have brilliant people with resources and time, but they have it in such abundance that they're not able to execute effectively and compete at the same pace that a startup can do it. There's this hierarchy in corporations of how decisions get made. And what's fascinating is I've seen a brilliant billion-dollar idea go through the corporate hierarchy process. And as it's going through the process, it gets trimmed. Not an additive process. It's trimmed. This is too risky. I don't understand this. Executive A says, I don't think this is the right trend. Or any billion-dollar idea, by the time it gets to approval, is a much smaller, much weaker idea. In the entrepreneurial space that I come from, it's the exact opposite. It's an additive process. 
here's my idea. You bring in teammates and everyone starts adding onto it, making it bigger and bigger and bigger. They see the world as infinitely large and in the corporate realm, they see it as how do we make this as risk adverse as possible? I think that's why most entrepreneurs that I, that I mentor now, when I talk to them about building a physical products company, don't ignore, but heavily discount your megacorps around the globe as competitors. The, the flip side of that is that's the innovation. There's also a team within every megacorp called strategy. It's usually run by a chief strategy officer who's in charge of acquisitions. Their job is to play the chessboard for the company. And so they look at out into the future and try to guess what companies they need to acquire and how to snap them together with other initiatives to be able to move the company forward and usually gain in revenue. Very powerful stuff. It's amazing that you're seeing kind of like this double-edged sword. First of mm -hmm. all, innovation just isn't happening nearly to the degree at the corporate level than it is at the startup level, or at least the trend is occurring in that direction. Things are changing. More innovation happening at the startup level, less innovation happening at the corporate level. However, on the flip side, it's a nice relationship because corporations are now considering spending more money on acquiring those startup innovations, less money on internal R&D. So it's a win-win for both the startup and the corporation itself. Whereas the startup finds the innovation, they hustle, they get it done. And most important, that means getting it to market. They want to see a provable track record of the product actually being sold to the market. It doesn't have to be big because the corporation can do that. They have all the channels to lever up what you have. But what they do want to see is, did you prove that people are out there that A, love the product? So you designed a great product that's producible. B, did they buy it? Did they actually whip out their credit card and say, yes, I will pay this price tag for that product? And of course, at the end of it, the holy grail is, did they leave you a good review? Did they love the product? Which is very yes. easy to do in the early phases. Go out and hustle every single customer that loved your product and get them to write a review about you. Many of them will, right? Especially yes. the early adopters. So you're seeing this market trend happening. Mike, how is that being compounded in value by the recession that's occurring right now? You're a big advocate of using the recession to lever basically the future success of your business and of your life. How do you see the recession playing into what you're talking about here today? Well, historically, more billion-dollar megacorps are at their genesis, at their creation stage, are created in recessions than in good times. The reason why is scarcity breeds creativity. It's one of my big quotes I tell people. The more scarce the resource, the more scarce of time, talent, and treasure that you have, it unlocks something magical in the human mind that creates amazingly brilliant ideas. It's not the abundance of resources or the abundance of time. Think about it. If you have every research report on your industry and you have all these people willing to step in and be talent and you have unlimited funds, there's just too much variability for you to come up with a brilliant idea. You'll actually pick the wrong combination and lead to mediocrity, which is corporate innovation 101, is most of the ideas are just mediocre. They're really small. They're, they're risk adverse versus inspiring. So they're uninspired. But scarcity breeds creativity. And so the entrepreneur, by their very nature, has scarcity. And this is why the most brilliant ideas are created in scarce economic environment. What's interesting is scarce economic environments have a high talent availability. A lot of people get laid off. A lot of people are looking for the next gigs. A lot of people want side hustles. A lot of people want to join a team and not be a victim of a recession ever again. And they want to control their own destiny. And so there's this abundance of talent that's willing to work with you that in good times, you just can't tap into. And I think that's a very interesting role. The other piece is from the finance side, when you have to deal with scarce fiscal, the money that you would use to develop a product, 
you're very creative on how you form relationships to be able to get access to capital. And one of those things is like what you do for a living is prove out the idea earlier on to a, a point where it's more viable. So the risk mitigation without idea shrinkage. So take a big idea and make sure it's manufacturable or make it possible. That actually increases chances of funding, especially in a scarce environment. Weak ideas that are put together with popsicle sticks and duct tape will not get funding over the next two to three years. You just need professional ideas that are invested in by the entrepreneur that can then lead to angel funding and then go down that curve. The other piece is large corporations are stepping down lower and lower and lower in the acquisitions pile. Corporations are now looking for better cap tables or better investment opportunities at the, at the lower stage. And one of the strategies I pursued, and if you take Skin and Original Apps, my two big companies I created, I created manufacturing technology. I created a product. You can go to skinit.com and see kind of what I did. But the majority of Skinit's revenue and, and Original Apps was white label technology. I actually took my product, my infrastructure, whole thing, and allowed larger brands, corporate brands like HP, Dell, T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon, all kinds of the MP3 players and stuff that were in the, the late 2000s. All the licenses, Disney, they all launched their own stores that were powered by Skinit to be able to market and promote to their customers. This is an easy way over the next three years. If you have an amazing product and you can put a bigger brand or a license on top of it, that brand or license, Megacorp or the, the license, will market and promote it to their audience. It's a great way to fund your business in a recession while still moving your revenue down the field. That's brilliant. And I think the key there is you had created a great technology that you'd already been in production with. So you could prove the two yeah. things we talked about earlier. A, you had a great product. It was rinse and repeat. So people had it. B, your clients are willing to pay for it and they loved it. You took that combination and said, okay, I've got this great concept that is now being produced and being bought in a small way. You've got this major customer reach. Let's partner up together and make it happen. Yes. And that's one of the big fallacies as well that hardware startups have to keep in mind is licensing or these big partnerships don't happen early. And I love how you mentioned that, Mike, mm -hmm. you've got to prove you've got a quality product that people want, even just in a small way, before you're getting those big partnerships, which then come down the road. So the key to really any hardware startup is get your product into production. That is the key, but ensure that's A, a good quality product, but B, it's it's rinse and repeat. Again, not at high volume. And that's the thing that sometimes scares some folks away. You can look at it, and I'm a big proponent, especially these days, of short-run manufacturing, 100 to 500 units of a product. The margins aren't going to be great there, but you're not looking for margins with your first or second or even third production run. You're looking to prove the model so that you can get access to these incredible partnership or sales or distribution opportunities that will open up to you once you prove that some people liked it, the few that you were able to access, and they whipped out their credit card and bought it. And like I say, the holy grail is at the end of the day, they also wrote a good review about it, ideally publicly online. Yes. And to build on that, I mean, one of the big things I saw back in the Skinnet days is we did a lot with licensing. So I got every major pro sports league, Marvel, Disney, you name it, you can go to Skinnet and see all the licenses are still there. Never discount the power of a small little startup by putting a license or partnering with a megacorp. The halo effect that that has in your small little startup. Your small little startup now, when you're partnered with HP or Dell, suddenly is much larger in perception with the consumer. So that's one of the reasons why I think Skin is still in business to this day is our licensing strategy to be able to tap into affinity. So people are really passionate about sports teams. And so they want their phones to have the Denver Broncos on it, for example. It's awesome when it says powered by your brand. 
So it's a, your brand now elevates to the same level as Disney with right. a consumer. It's a strategy that I'm surprised more smaller companies don't tap into. The power of the credibility of a license or the credibility of white labeling for a big company or powering a big company. One of the fallacies, I think, in the startup community is we need to build a brand. And right? so we have to focus all of our marketing efforts on our own brand and that's to be awesome. I still think that's somewhat important, but not to the point that you're missing low-hanging fruit by partnering with a large entity that's going to expose you to their millions of customers. Startup founders get caught up under the vanity of their startup and not the business of their startup. Business of your startups to create an amazing product consumers love and get into their hands as quickly as possible. Now, if a megacorp can help you with that, awesome. Want to know what happens when you do partner with a megacorp and you're starting to make their money? They're going to pay really, really attention and start thinking about how they could use it with other brands that they work with or other ways they can use it. And you get put onto their acquisition schedule. Uh, one of the things I always mentor new founders on is don't be paralyzed by some megacorp stealing your idea. In fact, go pitch them your idea. Their internal innovation team is not going to be able to pull it together within a year. They just won't. And so they'll be on this chief strategy officers and their team's radar as a potential acquisition target for you over time, or maybe a, even a possible investment. Oh, that's amazing. And I love how you mentioned that you don't have to go big, right? And one of the big things yeah. that we always really advocate here, especially as a new hardware startup, especially if this is your first time developing a new product, is just focus on your getting to that point. You're at your first few hundred units. That really yes. is an incredible milestone, a monumental milestone for any hardware startup. So many of them don't even get there because they focus on other things or they're worried too much about, like you said, building an actual brand image as opposed to just getting a product out there into market that they lose sight of that core goal. It should be a few hundred units into users' hands. And at that point, you will have learned so much about how you might be able to scale after that. So yes. if you spend a whole bunch of time and effort in the product ideation phase or in the prototyping phase or in the manufacturing phase, thinking about scale and how to really grow the business and build this great brand empire, all of that might be a complete waste when, like you mentioned, the situation might come where Megacorp knocks on your door and you white label to them. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a new business model. You have no yeah. brand anymore. Or maybe it is a collaboration with somebody like a Disney or whatever else. But the key mm -hmm. is focus on those first few hundred units. There's a twofold yes. advantage to that as well. If you focus really on just getting your first units made and out there, the other thing that will allow you to do is to get some really strong customer feedback about your product itself. So not only are you opening yes. up all these sales doors, and all these different business opportunities and partnerships on the sales side. But on the development side, you're going to get a ton of incredible feedback on A, how to make your product better, but also B, what might you add to it that could improve it beyond what it is today? So it's not just the problems of the product, but it's also the opportunities of the product. So much of that won't be there until you actually get those units into real customers' hands and start achieving yes. that feedback. And that's really the holy grail of when things really can take off if you've done that well, if you've built a great product. Agree 100% with that. The only caveat I would even add is they focus too much on too many features and the consumer just wants to fall in love with your brand and fall in love with the product. And they want to go on the journey of helping make it better on version two, three, and four. That's why most people stay on an iPhone is they kind of like the new features, the new journey there. They feel like they're part of the game. Most people are late to market because they're trying to create the perfect product and not the product the market is willing to accept. I love how you mentioned feature creep because that is certainly the easiest way to keep your product a 
reasonably cost-effective to develop, but also to ensure that what you release is of a reasonable quality for marketability or for that interest. Feature creep is super costly. Every time you add a feature, you're basically creating a new product. You add a handle onto the side, you add an LED, you pair it with an app, whatever it might be that's enhancing the core functionality of the original invention idea, you have to look at it as its own R&D plan, its own design, engineering, prototyping, et cetera. And in fact, the more features that you add to a product, the more interacting scenarios that occur, potentially causing all these amplifications of problems, even within other features that those features are interacting with. So really looking at feature creep and understanding what Mike's talking about here is keep the product simple, ensure that it's of a reasonable quality level, build it right, build something that people appreciate, but allow them, the user or your customers and bigger customers potentially could be a part of that. This could be the big corporations or whatever else that could be your much larger customers. Allow them to interact with your first and second versions of the product, provide the feedback that makes the perfect product to build a great business around. It all comes back to that feedback loop. Yeah. I mean, we we talk about MVPs, minimum viable products, both in software and hardware. Um, You know, the bare minimum of value that you can offer a consumer to get some results back, right? So MVP. And a lot of entrepreneurs have the psychology about lessening their vision of what they think the perfect product should be. And what they don't understand is the consumers now have been trained to not just buy a product for the value it has today, but invest in a product that's going to take them on a journey over the coming years. So you're buying a 10-year relationship, 20-year relationship. I mean, I'm on an Apple thing and I'm on a 30-year lifetime value with that customer. And what they want to do is believe the soul of the product that you create. Entrepreneurs are really good at putting a soul into the product. It's usually the founder's values and ideas. And there's just so much. And I love that's why I love startup products over corporate products is they just have this vibrancy to them. It's the product themselves and the packaging, the unwrapping experience, shopping experience, everything around it is just so intimate. It has a soul. And corporate, Megacorp, puts out soulless products that were committee-based, that were trimmed down to what the market researchers at some big five consulting firm told them would sell well. Consumers can tell the difference. But don't rob your consumer from the opportunity of having a relationship, a multi-date relationship with your product. This might be risky, but don't sleep with your customer on the first date. Give them a reason to go on multiple (laughs) dates with you over time. And that's the feature release over time. Allow them to fall in love with your brand over time by delighting them with new things. Whatever that looks like, um, every product's a little bit different. Uh, Don't discount the psychology, the positive psychology of people discovering and rediscovering their affinity with your brand and your product. Don't rob them of that. Most people try to put way too much. And that comes from our insecurities as entrepreneurs. We think that if it's scarce and it doesn't have a lot of features and all of this stuff, it's not valuable. And that's just wrong. One of the slides in my corporate deck is I show what the consumer wants was a knife, a steak knife. And what Megacorp builds is a Swiss army knife because it goes through all these different departments and every fiefdom in a a Megacorp wants to add on their little features and stuff or trim down things. And all the customer wants is a knife that's going to cut. And that's what startups do is we go to our iteration process to deliver perfect market fit. We don't add on extra things based upon some political motivation to make it relevant to executive acts. We don't care and we don't have that abundance of time, talent, and treasure. The takeaway that I always tell people is don't rob the opportunity to date your consumer. Don't rob them from the night. Powerful. And I want to tie that into the value that you mentioned, especially now that we're in the recession. Um, you've got some pretty strong opinions about the value of investing in intellectual property, mm-hmm. especially during a recession. Talk a bit about that and especially about the fear-based versus opportunity-based mentality that you should 
convert yourself to, especially in downturns like the recession we're in right now? Yeah, so I'm a, a serial entrepreneur, right? So I started with an art career and I still do art to this day. It led into a tech entrepreneur career that's led now into me publishing books and guest speaking and putting on workshops and training people on how to think and act better as an entrepreneur. My whole investment strategy, my whole life has paid off well. It has been a belief that the only thing I can can trust and control is the intellectual property that I can develop. IP, intellectual property, is something novel, something new to the world, something that's valuable. And my portfolio strategy from a fiscal point of view is always the double down on intellectual property. If I lose a client, I double down on creating more intellectual property, whether it's like I just launched a book or putting out free content to people. Like when COVID started, I turned all my online courses on how to build a, a startup to free on Udemy. If you want to take my course, there are four of them on Udemy that you can take for free now. And so I always am giving away free content. I'm always trying to create intellectual property. And it is the best investment joint, especially in a recession. Go look at your 401k and tell me if that was a good investment over the last five years. Probably not. Real estate's cratering or too expensive to get into. I, I don't care what crypto's cratered. There's no good investments other than intellectual property. So the people who are making money right now and are going to make money over the next five years are people who are investing in their own self-created intellectual property. And there is a ton of angel investors that I know I know VCs that are lowering down their thresholds to get into novel and interesting intellectual property that has opportunity to be exited, that has value to somebody else. So whether that's an acquisition or a partnership, a merger, there's just a, a ton of different ways intellectual property can be monetized. Me personally, I think now is the time for you to look at your personal family investment strategy and just ask a question. Do you believe more in yourself and your ability to create novel intellectual property and control it? and know exactly how the money's being spent and invested over time? Or are you going to keep on investing in things that historically are cratering at an accelerating pace? Whether that's real estate, stock market, crypto, it just all seems very speculative right now compared to the control you can have as an entrepreneur of creating the next new, the next great product that the world needs. We're not going to stop as a species innovating. And I, one of the quotes I tell everyone, innovation is the root of all of society's ills. I don't care what topic it is. Innovation at its root, you can trace all those problems back to because we innovated and created a new technology and then it was corrupted or bastardized or politicized. But innovation is also the savior of humanity. We have some wicked hard problems that people need to invent and create. And if you think big businesses is doing it, they're not. They're building politicized, cut down tolerable, committee-based ideas, the problems that are facing society, the problems we as entrepreneurs have to create, the problems that we need to solve are only going to come from us. It's not going to come from anybody else. Government's not going to save us. Big business is not going to save us. It is up to the individual to decide that now I'm going to invest in myself and create intellectual property that's going to change the world. Mike, that is incredibly powerful stuff. Entrepreneurs, you heard it here. It's up to you to create those innovations of the future, both for the world and for yourself. And mm -hmm. what better investment and than investing in yourself in a technology that you control, especially if you're at the very early stages of a hardware product or of any product idea or any invention in general, you've got to look at that as an investment, not as a cost base. And that is the key difference to your psychology in and around creating value for the world. It will require an investment. 
It doesn't just happen automatically. And that's what obviously we're talking about here on the show today and is so powerful. And Mike, you've done it time and time again. And here we are in the middle of a recession, which is the key time to be looking at these opportunities so that when we come out of the recession at some point, which always happens, always has, always will, there will be a day where we come out of this recession and there'll be another boom. You want your product to be front and center of that. You want it to be done, vetted, proven, improved. So you can start taking advantage of those partnerships or those opportunities to scale or those sales channels, whatever it might be, that can happen very quickly if you've built a strong foundation around your intellectual property when things are calm, when you're behind the scenes, when you're building and creating this intellectual property that Mike was talking about. Mike, I want to talk about one last thing before we go. You mentioned your book. Talk a bit about how that helps with innovation and where people can get a copy. It's called Innovating Innovation. This is it, the cover. Why Corporate Innovation Struggles in the Age of the Entrepreneur. So it was written for corporate innovation teams. And LA were very, very bare all their problems. And there's a lot of them. I think it's a valuable read as an entrepreneur to read because it'll help you sleep better at night if you're worried about megacorps coming and stealing your idea and executing on it. For sure, it will help you sleep better. I'm very critical of big companies and their innovation efforts. Not of the people themselves, some of the most amazing, talented people I've ever worked with are in these big innovation teams. I lay bare the problem that most big companies have is they just don't allow their people to think and act entrepreneurial. And the entrepreneurial way is the way of the future. You can move faster with the same tools. 10 years ago, it was very difficult to manufacture a product. I mean, you would go to a big manufacturing plant in China and you'd say, yeah, I want to run you know, 100 to 500 and they would just roll their eyes and you just couldn't get in. But companies like yours have been able to pioneer and get products to the point where they're going to be built right and they're built for manufacturability and they're built with a lot of the risks taking out. And so larger manufacturers now are open to the idea of doing lower runs because it's just more efficient for them to place a lot of bets with a lot of startups. They see exactly what I'm seeing when I'm experiencing is the way of the future is entrepreneurial. It is not corporate. And these big corporations are shifting their innovation budgets around to an acquisition strategy of success in the marketplace versus an in-house creating the next new. When I think that's just fascinating if you think about it. And if you look at the big announcements of companies that have been acquired and who's acquiring them, you can see that strategy is playing out. Startups are being acquired earlier in their life with less of a footprint of success because corporate innovation cannot innovate. And so I'm trying to help corporates understand that. And acquiring a startup is a problematic process for most corporations. And so that's one of the big areas that I'm I'm kind of pioneering is if a company has an entrepreneur in residence, a corporate entrepreneur in residence on staff, they can help this acquisition process much more effectively. So if any of that interests you, or go check out my book, Innovating Innovation. I think it's six bucks on Amazon. If you don't have money, um, I know it's a tough time out there. Uh, You can just email me at mikeandinspire or mikeatstemple.com, either one. Mike and Inspire with an R at the end, someone who inspires. And I'll make sure you get a copy. Mike, that's very generous of you. Much appreciated for all your words of wisdom today. As always, I will put all the links below to anyone that wants to click through as well. Mike, thanks again for your words of wisdom today. Appreciate you being on the show. It was a great time. I really enjoyed it and I'm really impressed with what you've built. Thank you. And we'll talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast. If you found some value in the show, please do us a huge favor and leave us a quick five-star review. If you have any questions, guest suggestions, or anything else, feel free to reach out to us anytime at our email, podcast at macodesign.com. That's podcast at macodesign.com. This show is hosted by Kevin Macko, North America's leading expert on product development for physical product startups. Huge thanks to our sponsors, PTC, and their two best-in-class 3D CAD product development software solutions, Onshape and Creo, and Macko 
Jericho Design and Invent, the original firm providing world-class consumer product development services tailored specifically to startups, small manufacturers, and inventors. Thanks for joining and see you next time.